As far back as I can remember, I was fascinated with the story of Peter Pan. I think what made the story so captivating as a child was the freedom that the boy Peter seemed to enjoy. During his first encounter with the young Wendy, he says to her, I ran away the day I was born. Well, that's quite an idea, and the story says Wendy was both surprised and interested by it. And his, after all, was more than just a physical escape. He was the boy who wouldn't grow up. And it wasn't that he couldn't. He actually refused to. I remember being completely taken by the idea that adventure was as easy to find as running away. And when I think of what Peter said to Wendy, I ran away the day I was born, it was like a reminder that I was already years behind. So I envied Peter and the Lost Boys. It seemed to me they had the life. I would daydream about battling pirates, of living in huts, and of fending for myself. But more than anything, it was the freedom. Running away meant no parents and no siblings, just adventure. And some days I would do more than dream. There were days when I'd grow fed up with my brothers and their endless teasings, and with parents that just could not see that he had, in fact, started it. And so I'd play the only real bargaining chip a kid has at that age. I would run away. Sometimes I would leave a note. Most times I would just announce that I was leaving forever. You'll never see me again, I'd say. Looking back, I'm amazed that my parents' complete lack of concern didn't register with me. Nothing. My mom actually over the years kept all these runaway notes. With seven boys, there's quite a few, but there's one in particular that my mom loves to pull out and read. Dear Mom, I hate you. I am running away. Love, Ben. Did you catch that? I hate you. I'm running away. Love, Ben. She rarely took these runaways seriously, and why would she? Mine always went the same, and they all started by building a treehouse. As a child, I remember thinking it was the best way to show everyone how serious I was. If I just took off, they might think I went somewhere to play. But if they knew I was living in a treehouse in the backyard, but were unable to persuade me to come down, my message had to get through. The houses always began the same, with smaller pieces of 2x4 nailed to the tree as a makeshift ladder. But by the time I had enough of them to get up into the tree, I never had enough to finish the job. At least not the one I had in mind. So I'd usually just nail the one or two remaining pieces of plywood to the branches to form a small platform. My own crow's nest, I thought. It would do. I mean, I was planning on roughing it anyway. Twenty minutes would pass, then forty-five, an hour if I felt my cause was just, or my determination steady. The funny thing is, looking back, all of this would have been in plain sight of the kitchen window. I can imagine my mom sitting and watching this little display and laughing to herself, because without fail, I'd eventually get tired, or hungry, or bored, and I'd climb down and go inside. I never even stayed gone long enough to be missed or worried over. I was there not long ago and I went to my old house. It's been more than 15 years since we moved, but practically everything looks how I remember it. The cobblestone driveway, the old brick and warped wood paneling, even my mom's old wisteria plant crawling up the wall next to the garage. I walk around the side of the house to the backyard, and there in a couple of the older trees, I see a dilapidated wood perch. They were like monuments to my lack of determination. Peter Pan managed to run away the day he was born. Once, and that was all it took. I ran away dozens of times. I just couldn't stay gone. So that's the theme of today's show, running away. Stories about people running away from home, from problems, from their very identity. 
In part one of our show, we'll hear three stories about a man whose fears cause him to run away on a regular basis, so often, in fact, that he's almost perpetually planning his next getaway. Then in part two, we'll hear the incredible runaway story of how a Salt Lake City native became a celebrated Mexican muralist. From KU Radio on the campus of the University of Utah, it's the story arc. I'm Elliot Bueller. The first time I ran away, I saw faces in the trees. I heard voices in the stone. Part one of today's show, Mark Three, comes from Aaron Stout, who, for as long as I've known him, has been telling stories about his older brother, Mark. Mark is 40, and because of drug use that Aaron says began when Mark was around 18, he suffers from pretty severe paranoid delusions. He's convinced that a Utah gang with drug ties is constantly after him to hurt or kill him. He's so convinced of this that he's essentially been running from this gang for years. Here's Aaron Stout with The Window. Usually what Mark would do is he'd get really paranoid. I'd be off with my friends, and he'd call me up out of nowhere and say, Aaron, you need to come home. I'm home by myself. I said, no, Mark, I'm, I'm at a movie, or I'm, I'm playing some games with some friends. I'm not going to come home and babysit. What's, what's going on? Aaron, there's a car parked around the corner, and there's people in it. I'm pretty sure that there's some Mexicans in there. They're part of the gang, and they're going to kill me. I swear to you they're going to kill me if I'm left here alone. I got to have you here. Aaron says Mark would do this so often that he got pretty used to having to defuse these situations. He would do that at random times. So one night I get a call from my mom. And she uh, she's telling me, Aaron, I don't know what's going on, but the bathroom door is locked from the inside. I can't get in. The light's on. And nobody is answering. Like there's nobody in there. I was like, Mom, Mark is probably passed out or something in the bathtub because my brother takes like two baths a day. So anyways, I'm like, Mom, he's probably just sitting in the bathtub. He probably fell asleep. Give him a little bit. No, no, honey, he's not. I've been banging on the door yelling and nobody's in there. So I said, Mom, I want you to do me a favor. Go outside in the driveway and just look to see if the window is open. goes around she's like yep it's open I was like Mark ran he ran okay I get back to the house I have to go outside have to jump through the bathroom window and unlock it from the inside the bath the bathtub is full of dirty water and water all over the floor and I'm just wondering how oh, this is a typical I, I can picture how this what happened Mark got paranoid that somebody was in the house he jumped out of the bathtub was sprinting around the bathroom wondering what to do finally probably just jumped out the window and freaking ran somewhere I don't even think he took his truck because he was worried about them you know chasing him so he probably ran through the backyard or something Next day, Mark comes home 
and we're just like, Mark, what the heck happened last night? The bathroom door was freaking locked. You were gone. The bathroom window was open. He's like, oh yeah, Aaron, don't worry about it, man. So it's okay. Because he was obviously embarrassed about what happened. It's like, no, Mark, what happened? I had to freaking come home and hop through the window and unlock the door. He's like, well, Aaron, what? Basically, I thought somebody was in the house. I heard voices. I was like, yeah, you heard voices. You're not the only one who freaking lives here. You know, there's other people that live here. It's not your house. So he's like, no, no, no. I heard a male voice. I knew mom was home, but I heard a male voice. And I knew it was one of the Delph Wiggles or whoever the gang is. I don't know. He's like, I knew it was one of them in the house. It's like, Mark, so you just decided to leave mom there by herself with the freaking Delph Wiggles or whatever, whoever they were? <laughs> and so I'm just like, Mark, I was at the house at that time. I was there with mom while you were in the bathroom. And then I left a little while after that. You heard my voice. You just, you ran away for nothing, dude. None of this seems to matter to Mark. No one's ever really been able to convince him that this gang isn't after him. It doesn't matter, though. He's so convinced that it's true that even the most banal everyday occurrences elicit this flight response. As you'll see in the second story, son with a gun. One night he had scheduled for his, his 17-year-old son to come over and, and visit him. And he, he was outside on the porch waiting for his son, just, you know, normally probably just having a smoke or whatever. And he was at, he was at my house because I, I live with my parents. And so he was just staying there because, you know, he didn't have a job or anything. So he's just staying at home, sitting out on the porch. And all of a sudden, this, uh, this vehicle drives up, parks in front. And it, it's nighttime. Parks in front of the house. And, he, you know, he's all cautious, kind of trying to hide, looking for, for evidence of who it is. And then somebody gets out of the car, out of the driver's side door. And he starts freaking out. And, uh... And then he, he thinks he sees another person get out of the passenger door. And, you know, it's kind of like a silhouette. He can't tell who it is. And he swears that they have guns. That they're holding, like, hunting rifles is, what, is how he described it. What happens next is exactly what anyone who knows Mark would expect him to do. Remember, he'd done this so many times that they were as used to him running away as he was to running. Instantly, what does he do? He's not wearing, you know, I mean, he's hanging out at home out, outside on the porch. He's not wearing any shoes or socks or whatever. He takes off running. And I have a big yard, a big backyard of dirt, and there's a big six-foot wall in the back. So he just darts through the backyard because he thinks it's these people who are out to kill him for, for drugs, but he doesn't really have any explanation why they're out to kill him. It's just this this mafia gang or whatever out to out to get him. So anyways, he's running through the backyard barefoot, gets to the wall, hops over the wall, runs through the middle of the block, and he runs down about three blocks down to the main road of the boulevard, and uh, he, he goes to this little motel, walks in the front desk, asks the people, he said, hey, I need to use your phone, I need to call the cops, there's been an incident. So they give him their wireless phone, and he calls the cops, he's like, hey, there's somebody out in front of my house, um, they're, they have guns, they have automatic rifles, and they're, 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 trying, they're up to something, they're going to kill me, I need you to go over to the house and meet me there. 
he goes back to the house. And the cops show up, and he's like, yeah, these people, they were here. I took off running. I went and called you guys. I don't know what's going on. These people are out to kill me. Among the friends who Aaron often tells these stories, Mark has become something of a folk hero. We all love to hear these stories, and it doesn't matter if we've heard them before. Most of them are so crazy that the novelty never seems to wear off. Unfortunately for Mark, the cops have heard some of these same stories too, and so they're not always the most eager to act on his claims. They file a report next day. You know, they don't even worry about it. I mean, most of the cops know who, who my brother is. You know, they know who he is. They know his reputation. So anyways, the next day, we get a call from the cops saying, hey, there was an incident last night with Mark. You know, he called us and said that there were people after him. And this is after I had talked to Mark about it because he called me earlier. He said, hey, just to let you know, there, there were people you know, out to, out to get me. And he was talking to me and my dad about this. So I was telling the cops, yeah, I was like, yeah, Mark already told us about it. Mark told us that, uh, you know, people, two people in a car showed up in front of the house and they had rifles. The cops said, yeah, that's what he told us. You know, we just want to know what's going on. So I told the cops, you know, it's probably no big deal. What, what ended up happening officer is that he ran through the backyard of my house hopped over the wall, went down three blocks away to a motel and asked to use the phone and called you guys. He's like, really? Because last night we actually got a call from that from a motel on the boulevard saying that some weird guy showed up. He wasn't wearing shoes or anything and he asked to use the phone so they let him use their, cell, their uh, wireless phone and he went outside and made a phone call, and then he just walked off with their phone. Didn't you know? Didn't didn't even give, bring back the phone. He just he just walked off with the phone. wasn't even thinking that you know he was stealing the phone. Later. I talked to Nate about it because I was like, you know, I, I needed to get the story straight. What really happened? Because I know nobody's after him to kill him. Nobody has any reason to kill him or is after him to get him. I, I call Nate later on that day, that night. I was like, Nate, what happened? Did you go over to our house or not? Nate, his son said, yeah. So basically I, I drove up, pulled in front of the house. I saw Mark sitting on the porch or I saw my dad sitting on the porch. I got out of the car and started walking towards him, and next thing I know, he was freaking sprinting away from me in the backyard, just running as fast as he could. And I, I, and you know, Nate was saying like, I don't know what was happening. I said, Well, Nate, he thought that you were you were some other guy out to kill him. Did Mark ever find out that it was just his son that had pulled up to visit him? Okay, so the next day, I was driving with Mark, and I said, Mark, let me just tell you something. I already talked to Nate about this whole thing because me and Mark had been arguing about it. I was trying to convince him that there was nobody out to kill him and he was just dead set on the fact that there was. And I said to Mark, Mark, I talked to Nate earlier tonight and Nate said that he pulled up right in front of the house and he got out and looked right at you and you looked right at him and then you just took off running out of nowhere. And Mark said to me, he's like, no, that that's not possible. Like, you know, there were, there was a car that pulled up in front of the house and there were two guys that got out and they had automatic rifles. 
And I don't know if Nate pulled up behind him or not, but that's not what happened. These two guys, they pulled up and they were actually there. I was like, Mark, Nate said that there was no other cars there. He pulled up in front of the house. He was the only car out there. He turned off the car right in front of the house, saw you standing on the porch, and you just took off running, buddy. Mark, I never convinced Mark that, you know, and nobody did that, that those two guys actually didn't show up, but yeah. Unfortunately, this kind of paranoia isn't unique. A lot of chronic drug users develop some form of psychological problems, and frequently it's paranoia. So the drug ends up forcing the user to live another life, to run away from their old one, and do whatever it takes to justify the new one. This obviously includes a need to maintain the habit, but it's more than that. As you'll see in this last story, Hot Pursuit, it's also a fierce belief in the fears that make up part of this new reality. Mark had stole, well, not stole, he... He had scrapped a bunch of really expensive power cord from one of my dad's yards. And it, it was about $2,000 worth of power cord. And it was really thick stuff, so it had a lot of copper in it. He thought he could get some money out of this. And he didn't really see any use for it, uh, for this big generator that it was on. He thought, oh, I can get a couple hundred bucks out of this. I'm just going to take it. He didn't, didn't even think about how much the actual cord had cost. So he took this, stripped it all, went and got about 250 bucks for it. And so my dad got super pissed and he put out a warrant for his arrest, went to the cops and said that Mark had stolen all of these, uh, this power cord and, you know, and he actually stole a couple other things that were amounted up to like another thousand dollars. So it was like $3,000 of theft. Aaron says that the whole family had been through so many episodes with Mark of drug use, theft, runaways, that at this point it was hard for his dad or anyone else to be sympathetic. At this point, my dad didn't have any sympathy for him because he's just so so much on drugs and just so messed up. So a couple days later after that happened, first time we had seen Mark since that, and Mark shows up at the house just acting like nothing happened, comes in and my dad just starts freaking out. He's like, I'm calling the cops. And Mark starts freaking out. Why, why are you calling the cops? What's going on? You stole all this power cord, blah, blah, blah. And Mark, Mark just gets in this big rebuttal with him. Oh, you weren't even using that thing. You know, I got some good money out of it. My dad's like, who cares? You went and spent it on drugs. So, you know, Mark, my dad holds, held the title to Mark's truck. So my dad walks out to, the, to his truck and Mark's following him. He's like, Mark, my dad's like, I'm taking the keys to your truck. You're not going anywhere. The cops are coming here and they're going to arrast you. So my, Mark's following him out there. And my dad's trying to take, take away the keys. And my dad, he's an older guy. You know, he can't, like, move around. He can't defend himself very well. And Mark's just pushing him away. Mark hops in his truck, starts it up, takes off down the road. Aaron says that Mark would often take off for days at a time. So he offers to follow him. I hop in the car and I start following him. I was about two blocks away from him. I don't know how he saw me, but I, I'm pretty sure he did. Followed him up and he, he hopped on a few, a few streets through some residential areas. And then he pulled into this gas station that's a few blocks away from our house. And he, he's pumped, he just sat, sat parked at a gas pump for like five minutes, not doing anything. He doesn't even get out of his truck. And I'm parked around the corner. I can still see him, but I'm pretty, I, I thought he couldn't see me. All of a sudden, he starts up the car and just whoops around the corner, hops on the main road, and just starts driving away. So I start following him again. I was, I was still, you know, a few hundred yards behind him, a couple blocks behind him, and he pulls into another gas station a few miles away. 
and he sits at that gas station for probably five minutes just sitting there hanging out and I'm I'm again I'm parked about two blocks away I can still see him but it's you know I'm far away enough to where I think I thought he couldn't see me and then after five minutes he starts up his truck and then pulls away and pulls up into this another residential area and he's driving around these streets and I was following him for the most part and then I lose him because he was just driving like crazy and at that point I knew that he could see me and that he knew I was following him so I lose him and I spend the next 15 minutes or 20 minutes looking for him in fact right after that I called my dad I said dad hop in your truck and you know go down and, and meet me on the other side of this road so we can meet him in between and you know that didn't work and I, I went back to the residential area I was I was looking all around these streets for him these cul-de-sacs could see him after 20 minutes of looking for him I pull up this this street that has no houses towards this cul-de-sac and all of a sudden I, I see Mark's truck just parked there and he's just chilling and I and I pull around and I'm kind of waiting waiting for him to where he can't see me but I pulled right past him or right past the street he was parked on so after a minute, I see him just jet freaking dart out from that cul-de-sac and just take off down the road. So I follow him and he gets back in this residential area and his truck dies and he just pulls up to the stop sign and he's sitting there just revving up or, you know, turning over his truck and it won't turn over. It's just, you know, it's just out of gas. I'm pretty sure is what happened. I pull up right next to him really slowly and I just roll down the window. I said, Mark, what the heck are you doing, dude? What are you going to do, man? Are you going to start running away from me? You're going to jail, dude. And he's just looking at me, just like jumping up. He's just all antsy, jumping up and down in his truck and just trying to start the truck. Finally, he gets it started and he pulls out from this stop sign and he does like a full circle, like around the, the intersection he does like a circle and a half and then and then pulls up the street and he's going up this steep hill and the truck dies again and it's just completely out of gas so he parks it on the side and I pull up behind him I get out it's like Mark what are you doing are you gonna run you just are you just gonna hop on foot and just am I gonna have to pursue you remember Mark has been living like this for his entire adult life he's used to running away to maintain the life he'd made for himself so when Aaron asks him am I gonna have to pursue you to Mark, it must have seemed more like a suggestion than a question. And he just, he doesn't say anything, he just starts running away from me. And he's running through this field where there's a bunch of brush and weeds. And I kind of lose him because he's, he's, he's running pretty fast. And I'm looking for him yelling his name. I was like, Mark, where are you? Come on, you're not going to have, you're not going to run forever from the cops. And I walk up to these trees and in the midst of these trees and these bushes, he squatted down like a little boy, looking like he's taking a crap on the ground or something, just squatted there, looking around, and, and he sees me, and I'm just, I just walk up to him, I was like, Mark, what are you doing? And he's just sitting there in silence for a minute, and I'm standing right next to him. I'm just like, geez, I'm like, I'm like afraid you're going to like do something crazy right now, and, and he calms down, he's like, no, Aaron, it's okay, I'm, I'm all right, I'm just, I'm just scared, man, I'm just nervous. You know, I just, I don't want to go back to jail, blah, blah, blah. I was like, what are you freaking doing running away? You're not going to be able to run away from the cops forever. It takes a few minutes, but Aaron finally convinces Mark to get in the car with him and to let him take him home so he can turn himself in. He knows that that's what he needs to do. 
So he's like, let me just have a smoke really quick, Aaron. So I sit there and let him have his smoke. And then we walk back and I, I'm driving back to the house. He's like, Aaron, don't, don't go back to the house yet. Just uh, go up to, up to the Red Hill, you know, park up there. I just need some time to be alone for a minute. So that, that, that's fine. He's about to go to jail for a long time. Like I, I can give him that. So we go up there and he's sitting there on the edge of this hill. And I'm parked a little ways away from him. Just giving him some time. Oh, and I go buy him some food because he hasn't eaten anything all day because he, you know, he doesn't have any money and he's been driving around all day. Anyways, so he's sitting up there eating food, sitting over, you know, smoking his cigarettes. And I go up to him and I said, Mark, I'm not going to sit here all night, dude. I'm going to have to take you back home right now. I got things to do. He's like, Aaron, maybe you just leave me up here. I promise I'm going to go right home. I have nowhere to go. I know I need to go to jail. It's the best thing for me right now. Just leave me up here. It's like, fine, dude. And then he starts saying, wait, wait a second. I don't know if you want me to leave you, if you, if I want you to leave me up here because the, the Del Fuegos or whoever the heck they are, they might, they might find me up here. They might know I'm up here. It's like, Mark, how would they freaking know that you're up here? I drove you up here. I know, but Aaron, they, they know a lot. Like, trust me, I've seen some weird stuff, man. They, I think they know that I'm up here. And if, if you leave, then they might try and come after me. It's like, Mark, that's not going to happen. He's like, well, you know what, man? I, I'm pretty limber. I'm, I'm pretty fast, man. I can, I can, you know what, man? If I start to run, I can get away from people. I was like, okay. So if they find you up here, they're just going to run away. He's like, yeah, I, I think I can hop down these rocks down the hill. Dude, if, you know, if I saw somebody after me, I, I'd get away from them. Now, I have to interject here to give you an idea about what Mark is really saying. Right now, Mark is sitting on top of a roughly 30-foot sandstone formation with only one really safe way up or down. And he's saying he can hop down and get away. I was like, hey, I'm gonna leave then. I'll leave you to, to get away from the freaking Delphuegos or whoever the hell they are. So when I'm about to leave, he's like, no, 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 Aaron, I don't wanna risk it. They're gonna find me up here. I'm, I'm just gonna go back home with you. So I take him back home and, you know, we, we give him the night. We, we let him turn himself in in the morning, but that whole night he's just paranoid. He doesn't want to leave the house because he thinks that people are going to find him there and, and kill him or something. In all these stories of him running away, I know you think it's crazy, but was there ever a time in the back of your mind thinking, maybe he's right, like maybe there is somebody after him, and this whole time, I, I haven't believed him, and there maybe is somebody after him, like what happens if this is the time that somebody really does find him? I, I've thought that, but... Like I've said, Mark is a nobody. He's he's a nobody to these guys. If they even do exist, then he would be the last person that they would be concerned about. And it's it's all in his mind, but for him, it's as real as it gets, and, and nobody's going to convince him otherwise. I've tried to dispute it with him time and time again, but nothing's ever going to convince him that it's just all a fabrication in his mind. Aaron Stout? with a few of his brother's runaway stories. If you find Aaron sometime, I promise he'll regale you with these and other tales of living with Mark. The second time I ran away, I saw warriors on the train catching tigers by the
from someone who adamantly denies that his running away is a figment of his imagination, to someone who knew very well that it was, and who nevertheless spent practically his entire life trying to run away. And it's not really clear whether he was ever successful. Part two of today's show comes from Susan Vogel, who first learned about the subject of this story, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Salt Lake City native now known as Pablo O'Higgins, in 1985 during a trip to Mexico City. For Vogel, what started out as an initial curiosity about this Utah artist revered as a Chicano turned into more than 20 years of researching and interviewing. Her book, Becoming Pablo O'Higgins, tells the amazing, practically untold story of how a regular kid from Utah influenced art and politics in the early 1900s. A lithograph Pablo produced in 1943 depicts a man suspended between two cultures. El hombre del siglo XX, man of the 20th century, shows a shoeless campesino against a background of nothing more than a few soft lines. The man is turned so that only his back, side, and a rough profile can be seen. Most of his face is covered by a beard, unusual for a campesino, but echoing his Spanish forefathers. His hat is in the shape of a helmet of Cortez's army. One pant leg is rolled up as a campesino would wear it, the other is straight. Rather than being in motion, at work, as are most of Pablo's workers, he is still as though suspended between movements, just as he has be- is between two cultures. At the time Pablo created his lithograph, he too was a man suspended between cultures. By this time, O'Higgins was a fixture in Mexico. He enjoyed success and notoriety. But what he really wanted, what he had always wanted, was acceptance. Born in Salt Lake City in March of 1904, the Presbyterian-raised O'Higgins grew up feeling out of place in the Mormon community in which he was raised. He also felt at odds with his upbringing. His father was a well-known lawyer for a mining company, and his mother was a housewife. Much of O'Higgins' later life indicates that he couldn't wait to get out of Utah and start anew. So after graduating from East High School in Salt Lake City in 1922, O'Higgins left to study art in San Diego. And it was there that his runaway story really takes off. When he was living in San Diego, he got a magazine called The Arts, and he read about Diego Rivera, who had just returned from Paris to Mexico City to participate in the big art projects that the Mexican government was starting after the revolution to help teach the Mexican people about the values of the revolution. So Pablo wrote a letter to Diego Rivera, and Rivera wrote back and invited him to come to Mexico City. So Pablo arrived in Mexico City in 1924, and he began watching Rivera paint. And after about six months, Rivera invited him to be a helper. So he began helping Diego Rivera on the murals in Mexico City at the Secretary of Education. So Pablo, this boy, Protestant, blue-eyed, um, the Presbyterian Anglo kid from Salt Lake City was now in the middle of the art world in Mexico City in 1924 with people from all over the world. So it seemed O'Higgins was in. He had broken in. But Pablo's ultimate acceptance in Mexico hinged on the runaway remaking who he was. It's an aspect of running away that's often forgotten. That inherent to running away means making a complete transformation, leaving one life behind in favor of another. And in this Vogel writes, O'Higgins stopped at nothing. He immersed himself in Mexican culture. By the 1930s, he was using the name Pablo. Involvement in a working class and agrarian revolutionary movement presented a dilemma for Pablo. 
As an American, he already would be associated with the American capitalists shown on the murals emerging from bank vaults or resting their heavy money bags on sickles held by workers. If the Mexican arts community, most of whom were Communist Party members, learned that his background included Mayflower ancestors and privilege, this would only add to what he had to overcome in order to be accepted. It was in this context that Pablo began saying he was born in San Francisco or grew up in San Diego. Quote, at age three, my parents took me to live in San Francisco. Three or four years later, we moved to San Diego. There I met many Mexicans and learned Spanish, end quote. He avoided references to Utah. In the 19, 1933, the San Francisco Chronicle described Pablo as a San Francisco native. The reference to San Francisco as his birthplace appears often over the years, including in publications he would have the ability to edit, such as catalogs for solo gallery shows. Vogel says that at this time, Mexico was an easy place to run away to. This is pre-cell phone, pre-internet, pre-everything practically. So he had the ability to make himself whoever he wanted to be. He was going by Pablo, he falsified his birthplace, but there was still that name, Higgins, which friends and colleagues lamented on his behalf, saying it was a misfortune that he had such a non-Mexican name. So, determined to make his runaway complete and more fully fit in, he changed that too. It is said that Pablo added the O to Higgins because it's easier to say Pablo O. Higgins than Pablo Higgins, but in the addition of an additional syllable makes the name more difficult to pronounce. There's a more plausible explanation. In becoming Mexican, Pablo was burdened with an English surname, Higgins. A simple solution to the English name was making it Irish. Describing his father as an unprosperous Irish lawyer and changing his English name to an Irish name would make Pablo appear less blue-blooded and draw on the goodwill enjoyed by the Irish in Mexico because of the country's common religion and history of oppression. If one had the burden of being a U.S. citizen of European heritage in the Mexican art world in 1924, one would be better off being an Irish Catholic than an English Protestant, or even a Scots-Irish Protestant. There may be another sad explanation for the name change. Pablo told his wife, Maria, that O'Higgins meant bastard son of Higgins, indicating that Pablo may have felt unworthy of his family name. For all his efforts to fit in, part of O'Higgins' runaway transformation must have felt a bit more natural. During this time, communism had swept Mexico, which had adopted a new constitution in 1917. It was a sharp contrast to the Republican family in which he was raised, but for O'Higgins and other artists, communism was concerned for the welfare of the worker, as they were. Membership in the Communist Party was common among the artists when Pablo arrived in Mexico. Mexican artists who believed strongly in revolutionary, the revolutionary movement felt a closeness to the Soviet Union, which had also suffered, suffered a bloody revolution. Even those who didn't have an affinity for communism found it necessary to play the role in order to secure a coveted position as a Rivera assistant. Communism was an untried dream, full of hope and promise of fairness, equality, and a good living for all workers. Communism had attracted many people in the United States who were fed up with the power of monopolists and supported the trust-busting of President Theodore Roosevelt in the early 1900s. 
There was pressure, therefore, to appear to be a worker in Mexico at this time. Quote, maintaining a personal style of dress which identifies oneself as a member of the working class was de rigueur, end quote, says art historian Noah Bardak. Core to the artist's belief was the idea that they were trabajadores, workers, just as were brickmakers, plasterers, and house painters. So for a time, it seemed the transformation was paying off. He had founded an influential graphic art workshop called the Taller de Grafica Popular, or TGP, to protest worldwide injustices and was working with some of Mexico's best-known printmakers. Even during times of political upheaval, O'Higgins' work and contributions to Mexico made him an esteemed figure. The same day that Excelsior, which is a, a newspaper in Mexico, reported on the San Miguel de Allende de- deportations, the, ma- the magazine Tiempo, whose founder was allied with the Mexican government, published a review of Pablo's individual exhibit at the Taller de Grafica Popular founded and government-funded Salon de Plastica Mexicana. Tiempo called Pablo's exhibit a very Mexican exhibit. It mentioned the depth of Pablo's understanding of the Mexican people and the absence of false folklorism in his work. Two political pieces were mentioned, the portable mural Veracruz and Los Lobos, both expressing political themes of the Mexican people coming together to defend their country. But Pablo's political activities and affiliations were not mentioned. The Veracruz mural condemned the 1914 U.S. invasion of Mexico, but the article did not describe that. The piece gave biographical details, among them that Pablo was born in San Francisco, California, but says nothing of his study in Moscow or his former Communist Party membership, even though involvement with the party was clearly the hottest newspaper topic of the day. The article quoted Leopoldo Mendez explaining that Pablo had an extreme lack of interest in money, that he would take the bread out of his own mouth to give to a hungry person and would take the shirt off his back for another. Mendez spoke of Pablo's devotion to the common worker, the the common man, the workers, and the campesinos who engaged in the arduous daily struggle for the common good. Pablo, he said, has lived in Mexico painting the people of Mexico. Mexico, Mendez says, owes him a great debt. The successes O'Higgins experienced at this time did come with a price. As he gained notoriety, there were some people, important people, who were not as accepting of his transplant status as his friends and colleagues were. He considered himself a Mexican, but he apparently was not, at least during wartime, Mexican enough. In 1942, he had suffered a devastating blow when the Mexican government awarded him a commission to paint a mural, only to revoke it on the ground he was a foreigner. This was startling to Pablo, who had lived and worked in Mexico for 18 years and had been included in an exhibit called 20 Centuries of Mexican Art at the New York Museum of Modern Art only two years earlier, and he had exhibited there as a Mexican artist. The government's action was met with disapproval from both the artistic and diplomatic communities. Mendez and other artists issued statements of protest. Former U.S. Ambassador Dwight Morrow said that Pablo was the best unofficial diplomat in the United States had in Mexico. The magazine Tiempo called Pablo more Mexican than Teotihuacan, referring to the indigenous pyramids near Mexico City. In the 1930s, artists from the United States had nearly flooded Mexico, yet none of them purported to become a Mexican artist. But this is exactly what O'Higgins had done. Anne Vogel writes, it probably led to his emotional undoing in some ways. 
In a way, Pablo took on an almost impossible challenge. The Mexican identity that the revolution and the revolutionary artists helped create was, to varying degrees, inherently anti-U.S. Thus, ironically, Pablo's role in perpetuating the leftist revolutionary movement was somewhat self-defeating. Pablo II had a variety of identities available to him, which he could have adopted with little difficulty. Artist, communist, activist, international traveler, teacher, lover of Mexican culture, and even a naturalized Mexican citizen. But he seemed to want to be accepted as a native Mexican. He set himself up for a major challenge, and at the same time, in working to keep the revolutionary flames burning, he undermined his ability to achieve his dream. When asked if she thought O'Higgins was ever successful in becoming Mexican, in completing his runaway, Vogel said he probably never felt truly accepted, that no matter what he did, he was always going to be an outsider. No change of location, name, birthplace, or political affiliation was enough to overcome who he really was. Somewhere he was still Paul Higgins. He had run away, but even that part of him couldn't stay gone. Last time I run away, well, I hope it is with you. We want to thank Susan Vogel for her contribution to today's show. You can find more information about her and Pablo O'Higgins in her book, Becoming Pablo O'Higgins, which is where the excerpts that she read for us came from. Also, thanks to Aaron Stout for his contribution to part one of the show. Other thanks to SoundCloud.com, whose podcast hosting makes it possible to find the story arc in iTunes, where you can subscribe free. You can also find more information about the show by going to thestoryarc.wordpress.com or by following us on Twitter and Facebook.